Forward of the Autobiography of Methuselah. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matthew Rees. The Autobiography of Methuselah by John Kendrick Bangs. Forward. Having recently passed into what my great-grandson Shem calls my anecdotage, it has occurred to me that perhaps some of the recollections of a more or less extended existence upon this globular mass of dust and water that we are pleased to call the earth may prove of interest to posterity, and I have accordingly, at the earnest solicitation of my grandson Noah, and his sons Shem, Ham, and Japhet, consented to put them into permanent literary form. Footnote. It is quite interesting, in the light of the contentions of history as to man's earliest realization that the earth is round, to find Methuselah speaking in this fashion. It would seem from this that the real facts had dawned upon the patriarch's mind even at this early period, and one is therefore disposed to regard as less apocryphal the anecdote recorded in Volume 3, Chapter 38, of The Life and Voyages of Noah, wherein Adam, after being ejected from the Garden of Eden, asked by Cain if he believes the world to be round like an orange, replies, I used to think so, my son, but under prevailing conditions I am forced into a more or less definite suspicion that it is elliptical like a lemon. Editor. End of footnote. In view of the facts that at this writing, ink and paper and pens having not as yet been invented, and that we have no capable stenographers among our village folk, and that because of my advanced years I should find great difficulty in producing my manuscript on a typewriting machine with my gouty fingers, for of the luscious fluid of the grape have I been a ready, though never overabundant, consumer. Even if I were familiar with the keyboard of such an instrument, or, if, indeed, there were any such instrument to facilitate the work, in view of these facts, I say, I have been compelled to make use of the literary methods of the Egyptians, and, with hammer and chisel, to gouge out my few remarks upon such slabs of stone as I can find upon my native heath. Let us hope that my story will not prove as heavy as my manuscript. It is hardly necessary for me to assure the indulgent reader that such a method of composition is not altogether an easy task for a man who is shortly to celebrate his 965th birthday, more especially since at no time in my life have I studied the arts of the stone-cutter, or been a master in the science of quarrying. Nor is it easy at my advanced age, with a back no longer sinewy, and muscles grown flabby from lack of active exercise, for me to lift a virgin sheet of stone from the ground to the surface of my writing-desk without a derrick. But these are, after all, minor difficulties, and I shall let no such insignificant obstacle stand between me and the great purpose I have in mind. I shall persist in the face of all in the writing of this autobiography, if for no worthier object than to provide occupation for my leisure hours, which, in these patriarchal days to which I have attained, sometimes hang heavy on my hands. I know not why it should so transpire, but it is the fact that since I passed my 950th birthday, I have had little liking for the pleasures which modern society most affects. To be sure, old and feeble as I am, and despite the uncertain quality of my knees, I still enjoy the excitement of the Virginia reel, and can still hold my own with men several centuries younger than myself in the clog, but I leave such diversions as bridge, draw-poker, and pinochle to more frivolous minds. Though I will say that when my great-grandchildren, Shem, Ham, and Japhet, the sons of my grandson Noah, come to my house on the few holidays their somewhat over-sober parent allows them from their labors in the shipyard, 
I take great delight in sitting upon the ground with them and renewing my acquaintance with those games of my youth, marbles and mumbledypeg, the which I learned from my great-uncle seven times removed, Cain, in the days when, with my grandfather, Jared, I used to go to see our first ancestor, Adam, at the old farm just outside of Edensburg, where, with his beautiful wife Eve, that grand old man was living in honored retirement. Nor have I in these days, as I used to have, any especial taste for the joys of the chase. There was a time when my slung-shot was unerring, and I could bring down a dodo, or snipe my harpy on the wing with as much ease as my wife can hit our barn door with a rolling pin at six feet. And for three hundred and thirty years I never let escape me any opportunity for tracking the dinosaur, the pterodactyl, or that fierce and sanguinary creature, the osteostogothomy, to his lair, and there fighting him unto the death during the open season for wild game of that particular sort. I well remember how, in my boyhood days, to be precise, shortly after my two hundred and twenty-second birthday, I went with my great-grandfather, Mahalaleel, over into the woods, back of little Ararat, after a great horned ornithorhynchus, and— but that is another story. Suffice it to say that I have at last reached a period in my life where I am content to leave the pleasures of Nimrod to my more nimble neighbors, and that no winged thing, save an occasional mosquito or locust, need fear my approach, and that my indulgence in the shedding of the blood of animals is confined to an infrequent personal superintendence of the slaughter of a spring lamb in green pea-time, when the scent is in the julep and the bloom is on the mint, or possibly, now and then, the removal from the pasture to the pantry of a bit of lowing roast beef, when I feel an inner craving for the crackle and the steak. Racing I have an abhorrence for, and always have had since in my early days I attended the county fair at North Ararat, and was there induced by one of my neighbors to participate as a rider in a twenty-mile steeplechase between a Discosaurus, which I rode, and a Diplodocus, in his possession. I found, after the race had started, that the animal which had been assigned to me as a gentleman jockey had not been broken to the saddle, and my experience during the next six days in staying on his back, for he immediately took the bit between his teeth and bolted for the woods, and was not again under control for that time. As he jumped over the various obstacles to his progress, from thank-you marms in the highways, which were plentiful, to such mountains as the country for a thousand miles about provided for his delectation, was one of the most terrific in my life, prolonged as it has been. I had been assured that the race was to be a go-as-you-please affair, but I had not been seated on that horrible creature's back for two minutes before I discovered that it was a go-as-he-pleased affair, and that going as I pleased, like the flowers that bloom in spring, had nothing to do with the case. Had I begun in the pursuit of the pleasures of the track in later years, after the invention of wheels, whereby that easy-running vehicle, the sulky, was brought into being, and when, by the taming of the horse, the latter became a domesticated animal with sporting proclivities, instead of a mere prowler of the plains, I might have found the joys of racing more to my taste. Although, in these later years of my life, when a truly noble pursuit has degenerated into a mere gambling enterprise, wherein those who can ill afford it squander their substance in riotous bookmaking, I am inclined to be grateful that my first experience in this direction has led me to cultivate an unconcerned aloofness from a pursuit which is ruinous to the old and corrupting to the young. Were the present state of literature more hopeful, perhaps I should find pleasure in reading. But I have viewed with such increasing alarm the growth of sensationalism in the literary output of my age, that I have felt that I owed it to my posterity, which is rapidly growing in numbers, 
I believe that the latest annual report of the Society of the Sons and Daughters of Methuselah shows a membership of 638,000, without counting the new arrivals since the end of the last fiscal year, which, at a rough guess, I should place at 36,000. I have felt, I say, that I owe it to that posterity to set it the example of not reading, as my most effective protest against those pernicious influences which have made the modern literary school a menace to civilization. Surely, if Noah's children, for instance, Shem, Ham, and Japhet, whom I have already had occasion to mention, were to surprise me, their venerable and, I hope, venerated ancestor, reading such stories as are now put forth by our most successful quarrymen, stories like that unspeakable novel, Three Decades, of which I am credibly informed eight million tons have already been sold, and which, let me say, when I had read only seven slabs of it, I had carted away and dumped into the Red Sea or the innocuous but highly frivolous tales of Miss Laura Jean de Blodicus. They would hardly accept from me as worthy of serious attention such admonitions as I am constantly giving them on the subject of the decadence of literature when I find them poring over the novels of the day. Consequently, even this usual solace of old age is denied to me, and writing becomes my refuge. I bespeak the reader's indulgence if he or she find in the ensuing pages any serious lapses from true literary style. I write merely as I feel, and do not pretend to be either an expert hieroglyphist or a rhetorician of commanding quality. Perhaps I should do more wisely if I were to accept the advice of my great-grandson Ham, who, overhearing my remark to a caller last Sunday evening that the work I have undertaken is one of considerable difficulty, climbed up into my lap and in his childish way, asked me, why I did not hire a Boswell to do it for me. I had to tell the child that I did not know what a Boswell was, and when I questioned him on the subject more closely, I found that it was only one of his childish fancies. If there were such a thing, as that rather euphoniously named invention of Ham's, who could relieve me of the drudgery of writing my own life, and who would do it well, I would cheerfully relinquish that end of my enterprise to him. But in the absence of such a thing, I am, in spite of my manifest shortcomings, compelled to do the work myself. On behalf of my story I can say, however, that whatever I shall put down here will be the truth, and that what I remember, notwithstanding my advanced years, I remember perfectly. I am quite aware that in some of the tales I shall tell, especially those having to do with prehistoric animals I have met, or antediluvians, as I believe the scientists call them, what I may say as to their habits, I was going to say manners, but refrain because in all my life I have never observed that they had any and powers may fall upon some ears as extravagant exaggerations. To these let me say here and now that there are exceptions to all rules, and that if, for instance, I tell the story of a pterodactyl that, having been swallowed whole by a discosaurus, successfully gnaws his way through the walls of the latter's stomach to freedom, I make no claim that all pterodactyls would do the same, but merely that in this particular case the pterodactyl to which I refer did it, and that I know he did it, because the man who saw it is a cousin of my grandfather's first wife's stepson, and is so wedded to truth that he is even now in jail, because he would not deny a charge of sheep-stealing, which he might easily have done were he an untruthful man. Again, when I observe that I have caught with an ordinary fish-hook, baited with a common garden or angle-worm, on the end of a light trout-line, a creosaurus with a neck ninety-seven feet long and scales so large that you could weigh a hay-wagon on the smallest of the lot, near the end of his tail, I admit at the outset that the feat was unusual, had never occurred before, and is never likely to occur again, but can bring affidavits to prove that it did happen that time, 
signed by reputable parties who have heard me tell about it more than once. I make these statements here not in any sense to apologize for anything I shall say in my book, but merely to forestall the criticism of highly cultivated and truly scientific readers, who, after a lifelong study of the habits of these creatures, may feel impelled to question the accuracy of my statements, and add to my perplexities by so advertising my book, that I shall be put to the arduous necessity of chiseling out another edition, a labor which I have no desire to assume. One more word, as to the language I have chosen for the presentation of my narrative. I have chosen English as the language in which to chisel out these random recollections of mine for a variety of reasons. Most conspicuous of these is that, at the time of this writing, no one has yet thought to devise a French, German, Spanish, or Italian language. Russian I have no familiarity with. Chinese I do not care for. Latin and Greek few people can read, and as for Egyptian, while it is an excellent and fluent tongue for speaking purposes, I find myself appalled at the prospect of writing a story of the length of mine in the hieroglyphics which, up to date, form the whole extent of Egyptian chirography. An occasional pictorial rebus in a child's magazine is a source of pleasure and profit to both the young and the old, but the autobiography of a man of my years told in pictures, and pictures, for the most part, of squab, spring chickens, and canvas-back ducks, would, I fear, prove arduous reading. Moreover, I am but an indifferent draftsman, and I suspect that when the precise thought that I have in mind can be best expressed by a portrait of a hummingbird or a flamingo, my readers, because of my inexpert handling of my tools, would hardly be able to distinguish the creature I should limb from an albatross, a red-head duck, or a june-bug, which would lead to a great deal of obscurity, and in some cases might cause me to say things that I should not care to be held responsible for. There is left me, then, only a choice between English and Esperanto, and I incline to the former, not because I do not wish the Esperantists well, but because in the present condition of the latter's language it affects the eye more like a barbed-wire fence than a medium for the expression of ideas. At this stage of the proceedings I can think of nothing else either to explain or to apologize for, but in closing I beg the reader to accept my assurance that if, in the narratives that follow, he finds anything that needs either explanation or apology. I shall be glad to explain if he will bring the matter to my attention, and herewith tender in advance for his acceptance any apology which occasion may require. And so to my story. George W. Methuselah, Ararat Corners, B.C. 2348. End of Forward. Recording by Matthew Reese, Davenport, Iowa.